Datanauts podcast, automating a Microsoft MCSE lab creation using Chef. At PacketPushers.net, you can find this in all of our Datanaut shows about infrastructure engineering or search for Datanauts, spelled like astronauts, in your favorite podcatcher. You can follow us at Datanauts underscore show. I am Ethan Banks at EC Banks, and with me is the fabulous Chris Wall at Chris Wall, who doesn't just walk onto a stage, he explodes. <laughs> Joining Chris and I is Brett Johnson. Brett, would you introduce yourself to the Datanauts audience? Hi, everyone. I'm Brett Johnson, as Ethan just said. So I'm a consultant for VMware, and I'm located in Melbourne. So as you may have already guessed from my accent, I'm Australian. And yeah, I'm just here to talk about a project I've been working on to automate a MSCSA lab using Chef. Okay, please tell me about coffee, because we started this offline conversation about the actual cup of coffee you were having, and it made me feel as an American like, perhaps I don't actually drink coffee. I drink something that pretends to be coffee, but it is not. What is it that you drink? Yeah, I drink what I would call real coffee. Most people in Melbourne have a certain level of coffee snobbery, but most Australians have a high level of coffee snobbery when we travel to the States. So most of our coffee is espresso, and we also get very confused in America when we get asked if we want coffee or espresso because <laughs> drip coffee is not really considered coffee. It's <laughs> something brown and slightly caffeinated. Whereas espresso, when made, probably has this nice brown crema. Hey, who, on ma- top. who makes better coffee, Melbourne or Sydney? Obviously, Melbourne. Okay, I can't. Uh, you can't <laughs> Mel- if you live in Melbourne, you can't give Sydney any support for anything. It's just how it is. Fair enough. <laughs> All right, Brett. Well, let's jump into this conversation about uh, using Chef to stand up a Microsoft MCSC lab. So we should stop about the MCS. Sorry, MCSA uh, lab by just level setting here. We're talking about Microsoft Cert, right? So what is the MCSA? The MCSA is Microsoft's second level in their certification chain. So if most of your listeners are from the networking space, you could think of it a bit like a CCNA. They do have before that an exam, which isn't a prerequisite, called the MTA, which is a bit more like your CCNE, if I get that acronym right off the top of my head. But the MCSA, there's about 15 different exams for those. And these are sort of where a lot of people who have come from the Windows space sort of start with their certifications. You don't mean, you mean there's 15 different flavors of the MCSA or it takes 15 exams to get your MCSA? It's 15 different flavors of the MCSA. I counted them this morning just before the show. Jeepers, okay. Yeah. They, <laughs> Otherwise, they would be sadistic. Like, yeah. all right, you've seen more to go. And you're finally, <laughs> like, what does this thing get you? Three cups of coffee in Melbourne? That would be kind of good. Cool. Then, then you fail. Uh, then by the time you get to the last one, it's the whole exam track's expired and you have to go do another one. That would be fitting, yes. The topics for the MCSAs, they're quite varied because Microsoft has, has a varied range of products. So there's you know, one for Windows 10, there's a Service 2016, there's a few different SQL ones, there's now ones for Azure. There's actually one dedicated just for Linux on Azure, for example. So these ones, are, they are the second level, but they are sort of that first stepping stone. So the server one is the main one that I've done and actually bothered to look at. They're not easy. They used to have a reputation for being very easy, but they've really stepped up the difficulty game with the 2012 and the Server 2016 exams. So now there's expectation to know PowerShell. Yeah. Well, I was going to ask because I, I remember, I mean, it's been a long time since I've taken a Microsoft cert. So my background was back when it was the MCP and the MCITP, and then they had some other ones after that. 
is the MCSA, it sounds like a, a kind of reincarnation from the old MCSA, MCSE days that were in the 90s. Is there still kind of a building block that allows you to get to further, more advanced certifications? Yeah, so once you have your MCSA, you can take a couple of extra exams, and those exams then depend on the track you've done. And that will enable you to get a MCSE, which is their expert-level exams. Hmm. Um, oh. Yeah. yeah. So it's like the but same they're... letters, but the acronym meaning has changed, it sounds like. Because it used to be the MCSA would then lead to the MCSE, and it was like associate and engineer or something like that. That's my memory. And yep. and everyone cheated the MCSE, right? All the yeah. brain dumps <laughs> and everything. So it became, like around 2000, it became worthless <laughs> because everybody had it. Yeah, the MCSE back in the 90s was was that. That's when I was an MCSE because I'm old. But it was six exams and right. The test you took early on, you would be an MCSA, and then that would lead up to being an MCSE if you took enough of those exams. So, Yeah, and yeah, that part of it still hasn't changed, and they're still written exams. So unlike more lab exams, they are probably a bit easier to find the answers than some. Interesting. So is it still you sit down at one of the approved testing places and the exam is kind of here's the blueprint and it's all kind of multiple choice drag and drop, you know, not really like a, a lab sort of thing? Yeah, so it's the good old 15-inch 4x3 monitor, the rattling air conditioner <laughs> and ambiguously worded questions. Sounds like you're describing Pearson View. It's like the place we all love to hate. <laughs> I might be doing exactly that. Yeah, <laughs> I remember, actually, I can't remember if it's Pearson View or Prometric that does theirs. It doesn't really make too much difference. It's the same two, experience. Two sides of the same dirty coin in some yeah. ways. So, okay, are the different courses and exams you're talking about? They lead to specializations, or uh, walk me through how that works and why you would choose one exam over another. So, for the MCSAs, just generally speaking, to get a certain MCSA one, you'd look at what you're doing. So, if you're working as an AD admin, you do the server 2016 ones for example now if you're working with office 365 or you have the desire to work more with office 365 there's an office 365 one so you pick those sort of specializations is usually how you would go with that so with the, the azure ones there are some exams which aren't linked to any mcsa certification i haven't looked into oh. those much to be honest but there there are some where you can take the exam but they just give you that to learn about that product more than to get a certification. That's kind of disappointing. It's like <laughs> you get done. It's like, yeah, here's participation award. Like, no, I want a cert. <laughs> Give me a cert, man. Get the shakes. Like, where's my cert? <laughs> so, Brett, when you go to practice this, you're, this the whole show was really going to be about you know setting up a lab environment. Is it pretty tough to set up a lab with the stuff you need? I mean, can you do it all virtually? Does Microsoft make eval keys readily available so you don't have to like buy a lot of stuff? How does it work? Depending on the exam, depends on how easy or hard it is to set up a lab environment. For example, the Office 365 ones, you could sign up for a Office 365 subscription without purchasing a license to get experience in there. For the server one specifically, which is the project I've done is about, you can download Windows servers, ISOs, which are the eval editions or evaluation editions, and they've got 180-day evaluation time limit, and you don't pay for those at all. They, you, know, you download them, you use them, you do whatever you want. I actually use them very heavily in my own personal labs. The other option is if you go through, at least with Azure and AWS, you can use Microsoft's provided licensing. And then it depends on the size. So if you're in the free period for AWS, 
for those 12 months and you use server 2016 on the micro image so the smallest i think the second smallest available it's free with certain constraints around what aws limits there so you do have some options without having to pay anything or much for a lab in that regard these days especially with the cloud providers and what about um building something in your house you know like a lab environment for the home is that something, A, I mean, A, have you exercised that or not? And, and B, if you have, you know, like what kind of hardware are we looking at from an investment perspective? So for a home lab, it's actually quite easy to set up, especially with the eval editions. I use VMware Workstation. You could use a um, virtual box. Setting up an MCSC <laughs> lab on, on VMware? Or did it feel kind of like, yeah. Uh, after all the years I spent actually administering Windows servers running on ESXi, it kind of felt like home. So you can spin it up, you can use VirtualBox, you can use pretty much whatever hypervisor you want. So you can run that on your on your Mac, your Windows box, you run it on Linux box if that's what you're running at home. And you can use those eval editions and you just install it like a standard operating system for six months. And depending on how much you want to do or like how many server instances you want to spin up, really depends on that. That determines the resources. So for example, you could probably start with about eight gig of RAM you're talking Intel CPUs around the i5, and you definitely want to have an SSD which those VM are installed to just for that performance thing because mechanical drives just, just kill that, especially when you get a, more than one. It really matters that much on Windows? I mean, I wouldn't have expected a lot of data to be chugging around where you'd care, or is it just like the boot-up time you're worried about? Things like boot-up time and trying to make your actual lab time worthwhile and get it done in a reasonable amount of time. I'd definitely say the SSDs, even 120 gig, when you thin provision them, is more than enough space for you know getting a couple of Windows servers up and running and getting some uh, the Windows features installed for whatever you're studying at that point in time. I'm fully with you on that one, Brad. Especially once you have more than one thing going at once, like if you've got different applications or different virtual machines running, <laughs> the pain of a rotational disk is just so great. I mean, maybe you can store some stuff on one somewhere else. For just you know file store user store something like that but actually running applications on rotational disk like think about it yeah. does your laptop even have that kind of stuff i mean what, what's the price of 128 gig ssd these days like 60 yeah. bucks maybe and, and i'm not really i'm not defending the mechanical drives to be honest it's just because like my vmware boxes here have ssds in them small ones for exactly that reason but it makes boot up time you know, so fast compared to you know trying to boot off of the network or trying to boot off of a uh, you know a mechanical disk. But my thought was, well, geez, once you get the Windows box up and running, it shouldn't be doing that much. It shouldn't be like you know chugging a lot of data around where you're like waiting forever. But but I get it. It doesn't cost that much these days, especially. Yeah, it doesn't cost too much, and I know why most consumers would buy mechanicals anyway these days. Enterprise perspective, obviously, there's different use cases. And for the lab, you're probably going to be running a minimum two servers at a time. And then as you get up into the, some of the other exams, especially the, was it the 413, where you start dealing with then your certificate services. You're going to need your domain controller and the separate certificate server. And then if you want to also put the network protection services with that as well, then you're looking at about three you're going to be running for that sort of thing. How much memory then? I'd run it, you could get away barely with about 8 gig. It'd probably start chugging then, so you'd be looking to put that probably closer to 16 to to really get by at a, at a decent pace. Yeah, and I, I would important. imagine the step up in price, it, it's not double to go from 8 to 16. It's usually some percentage difference. 
if yes. you got a few, just go without coffee for like a week. <laughs> you can afford the difference and then buy coffee when you get the lab because you'll need it. Oh, I could buy a house if I gave up coffee for a week. Oh, man. I'm not going there. That's too expensive. <laughs> so, Brett, if you're using a lab to stand up instances of Windows Server, it sounds like you're learning how to do specific things. And so maybe the strategy is kind of repeat tasks over and over until it's in your head. I know there's a bunch of different MCSA certs, but I mean, on the server one you were focused on, is, is it more of a, like a concept cert where you got to learn a lot of big ideas or, or somewhere in the middle? It's a bit of a concept cert, but one of the things that Microsoft have done on their certs to make things difficult is they do put in a lot of that fine grain, annoying detail as such, you know, like very specific, how do you do this? And it's one of those things is even as an experienced engineer, you look at the questions like, well, I know exactly how I would do that. I just... Google how to do it. I know the concept and I'd go to TechNet to do it. But that is unfortunately some of the detail that they want you to have for the exam, a bit of it, your own memory dump. So there is a lot of going through and doing the tasks over and over until you basically do them blindfolded. My usual recommendation is with the tasks that they ask you to use or to do through the exam blueprint, learn how to do it through the interface, then learn how to do it without the interface using PowerShell and then write it down if you can from memory. And that's pretty much how you how I normally try to actually do those, and it makes it stick quite well. Because you don't know when they say we want you to stand up a d- domain controller, or maybe how to install a Windows feature. They don't know if you want if, if you want to do it through the UI, or through PowerShell, or through command prompt using an inbuilt tool called Dism, which is another installation tool. So you've got three different ways just to install a Windows feature, and you don't know which way they're going to ask you how to do it on the exam. It's one of those, you've got to keep doing the things over and over. You know, I think it's kind of neat that there are different certifications for Microsoft at the MCSA level, specifically the ones that kind of focus on cloud or, or software as a service, SaaS applications, such as the mention of Office 365. Because, you know, it's, it's, it's about the service that you're delivering, not just the infrastructure, although I have a special place in my heart for, for gear. Uh, what about you, Ethan? I just love the fact that the Microsoft e-validations are 180 days and there's no pay and they don't really hassle you about that. You know, I've done that. I downloaded Windows Server 2016, I believe, not that long ago, and it was super easy. I mean, and I got all I got from Microsoft by way of like a nag was uh, just a couple of emails here and there going, hey, you know, let us know if you need any help, if you want to convert this into a full license, if there's any questions we can answer about the eval. They were really light-handed about it not heavy at all and i didn't get a lot of nag screens in windows server either you could just use it microsoft's really figured out the eval thing and they're doing it right and 180 days is the kind of time that you actually need because for me working on lab stuff i get really distracted and sometimes it takes weeks before i get back to a project so i you know bravo microsoft you're doing it right Okay, we know more about the MCSA, what it is, their specialties, and we've learned far too much about coffee. Let's go into the chef part. Now, this is where you're offloading, I'm assuming, things you don't necessarily need to learn to automation, or perhaps you've learned it and you want to automate it for future builds. So let's talk about the project. What is it that you built? So what I've built, and I should probably use the term building because it's still very much an active work in process, is the ability to stand up a Windows domain in a cloud provider at the moment, I've got it written for AWS specifically, and it will build up a couple of Windows servers with the full 
domain install and it'll also auto add servers to this as members. It does take away a couple of the tasks that are actually key to learning the MCSA, especially how to install a domain controller. So it's not one of those ones where you can just do it and learn everything that's on the exam. It's one to help supplement that and take away some of the requirement to have hardware at home and to be able to not waste study time standing up and pulling down a lab all the time. So people can just stand it up. If they've already know how to install a domain controller, they can do, you know, get this up and running and start learning the other roles that are part of the exam blueprint. So is that the biggest reason that you did this, Brett? Just save time? Why stand up these things over and over again by hand if you can automate that process? Yeah, so that's pretty much the exact reason. It came down to when I've done a lot of study at home, a lot of what I end up spending my time on is if the lab's having an issue and I'm just trying to do a small task because that's what I've decided this night or a couple of nights are going to be about. And then the lab has an issue and I've got to I've got to deal with that and I don't get that study time in. I built this to sort of help take away from that. If the lab's having an issue, whatever it is, it may be completely unrelated to what I'm trying to do where I can just have it stand up fresh where it should be the same every time and just get on with what I'm actually trying to do instead of, I wouldn't say wasting time, but instead of investing time into doing something that's not necessarily going to lead to the the end goal that I'm hoping for it to. That's fair. And ideally, it's sometimes it's a rabbit hole, right? Because something breaks, you know how to fix it. It can be kind of fun the first few times to fix it or do something. But then as your lab gets more complex, I would remark upon times where I'm like, man, two hours in and all I'm doing is like goofing around in the lab and following different rabbit holes and the thing that I actually had on the docket for the evening from a learning perspective never gets done. So I think that that makes a lot of sense. Thank you. So my question is this, Chef, why did you choose that for the project? You know, did you consider other config managers? Were you interested in learning Chef? You know, I'd really like to kind of pick that apart. Yeah, sure. So I had the idea on to start with of, well, how can I build a lab? Like I wanted a project to learn configuration management. That was the first thought. And then I was like, okay, well, how would I use one to build a lab? And I thought about the MCSA being a good sort of lab to build because I know the Windows domain services quite well. I know what it takes to install them from various ways. So I thought that's a, a good one where I know what I'm already doing manually and what to expect so I can use that prior knowledge to validate my build. And then I went on to, okay, I want to do it in the cloud. What's the easiest config manager to be able to stand it up from nothing. So the lab will create the EC2 instances from nothing. It will use the public server 2016 AMI to do so. And when I looked at other ones such as Ansible and Puppet, though, the other two I looked at, I had the feeling that Ansible, especially partly being agentless, it wouldn't be able to handle reboots required as installing a domain controller especially requires a number of restarts. And I needed something to be able to handle that. So I had a look at Puppet because it has an agent, which means when it boots up, it can run as a service. And when I was reading through how to bootstrap, so install it without actually having to install the agent and have it part of a process, it started talking a lot about manual certificate assignments, that sort of thing, or put it as part of like you build your own custom AMI. So you build it into as a part of the custom AMI. And it didn't fit with what I wanted. I want to be able to stand up from nothing. So then I had a look at Chef. I found that there's a bootstrap command where you can basically give it 
connection details, so IP address, you can say whether it's WinRM for Windows, so that's Windows Remote Management, or SSH for Linux. You give it that, the IP address and some credentials, and it will automatically connect and just install the agent and it connects to your chef server. It just seemed like the most streamlined, painless approach. So I picked Chef. Okay, so now if I want to use this tool that you've built, what are the requirements? Do I have to learn Chef to be able to make use of this thing you've made? To just make use of it, no. There are requirements in terms of prerequisites that you need to set up to actually start using the tool. One of them is because it's based on AWS at the moment and I am working on Azure, but the same thing will go for if you were to do it on Azure. You need an account with that provider, so a AWS account or you need a Azure account when that one comes. You'll need to install the development kit from Chef, which is essentially just the application how to interact with Chef server. So it's a fairly small download, very easy to install, basically next, next, next. You'll need a product called Terraform, which is actually used to stand up the instance in the cloud provider that's available from the files that are provided. And you'll need to set up a Chef server and thankfully Chef provide a hosted version of their Chef server completely for free. So that's where you would store the cookbook, which is the set of instructions that declares how to do it, how to actually stand everything up. It also declares the roles or the... So when a a server connects, it will say, okay, your role is this, and that determines then what gets installed. Additionally, there are some scripts I'm working on to be able to easily put that information into Chef Server. So then those roles are already defined for you when the first server connects. The main parts I'm working on at the moment is to make it as easy as possible for someone without any Chef knowledge, with minimal AWS knowledge, to be able to just run a single command, which is why Terraform's there, and get everything up and running in half an hour or less. Okay, there's a lot of things we can pick apart there, but one thing, first of all, this is all happening in public cloud. <laughs> so how do we minimize public cloud costs, or, or what should I be you know, thinking about as I stand this thing up? Because now as soon as I've got the lab up and running, there's a, you know, a dollar clock that's, that's ticking, right? Very much so. So the cost is a large reason why I picked Terraform. Terraform was picked so you can run Terraform Apply on your command line, and it will stand up the whole instance. Then the cost consideration there comes into, you can type in Terraform Destroy, and it kills everything. So it will tear down every instance and delete them so you're no longer being charged. So mm. a big reason for that was about cost. Make it easy for people not only to stand it up with a single command, but more importantly, tear it down when they're done. So if they're packing up and they've got to go somewhere, they go, oh, crap, Terraform Destroy, and they walk away and it'll just kill everything. Mm. Now, maybe we should just back up a second and just let people know what Terraform is. It's not Chef, but Chef is using Terraform as a tool. I think Terraform's come up on Datanauts maybe once or twice in earlier podcasts, but just really quick so people understand what Terraform is. Yep. Okay. So Terraform is a application from a company called HashiCorp, and it's free to download. It's a provisioning tool that you can use to stand up instances in a way that you have described. So in a Terraform file, you say, this is what my instances look like. This is various settings. So you describe it. And when you hit Terraform apply, it makes that happen. So it will Terraform will use Chef, not the other way around, to install the Chef agent. So it'll 
talk to AWS first. It'll spin them up. It'll go, hey, look, you're up. And then it will say, hey, chef. And then chef will do its part. So it will talk to your chef server to do those installs for you. Jeez, that all sounds like magic. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, and you'll remember, we did have the HashiCorp folks on talking about that. And and that was, I think, one of the words they use. Like, it's like magic. It's infrastructure as code. And it makes perfect sense for this use case. Yeah. You called out Scott Lowe in your notes, Brett, uh, in reference to Terraform. There was something that you said you you shamelessly stole. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. So before this, I was struggling a little bit getting the Terraform up, uh, the Terraform side of things written and making it work how I wanted to. And then I went to Interop. And at Interop, Scott had a class on standing up containers. So he had a class about getting started with containers. And the tools he was using to for the class to actually teach it was Terraform. And one of them was about standing up uh, containers in EC2. And his Terraform scripts had variables used in a way that I wanted to. He was standing up the AWS security groups all through his Terraform script. And these are some of the, especially the security groups are some of the things that aren't relevant to the to what the lab does, but they're needed for it. And so by having Terraform do it, it means it makes it, it lowers that barrier of entry. When I got back, I had all these scripts from his GitHub repository, and I used those to learn how he did what he did and pretty much pulled a heap of code from that to be able to do what I do. So, for example, all the the security groups for AWS and the VPC configuration code there, I just ripped out of his, so shamelessly stole it. (laughs) Because we know we had a show on uh, identity access management, and man... Having heard just that little piece of it, it, it's much easier to say, okay, this is what I need. This is the JSON config for the security group or whatever. Great. Copy, paste, done. And that's kind of the point of it, too. You don't have to start from yeah. scratch every time. Yeah, um, so, exactly. So, Brett, the, the dots that I need help connecting is you've got Terraform and Chef that are basically your builders that are taking your declarative state and kind of running through an engine building the environment. What about the images that you're using to actually build out these servers? I'm assuming they're Microsoft images to build out your virtual data center, so to speak. Yes. So Microsoft, just like many other vendors, they provide their own AMI instances where anyone can use to spin up instances in that cloud provider. So, for example, we're still talking about AWS. So they'll provide... AMI instances for Server 2016 and various other operating systems. So what I've done to make sure people don't have to have their own customized AMIs, which you have to pay for the storage on, I've just gone through and I've said, okay, well, how about we just pull the public one? And that was comes back to that big reason that I chose Chef. Or one point, I made that ease of bootstrapping an important part at the start is I want people to just be able to pull the public ones so they don't need to pay for the storage of keeping a custom AMI. They don't have to go through the trouble of building a custom AMI. They can just pull something that's very vanilla and then mm. we can put what we want on there to make it useful for our purpose. So kind of taking a, I get it, a public image that's immutable. You don't have to worry about maintaining it or whatnot and then kind of layering whatever it is you need to inject it into the environment. And then that's kind of your infrastructure as a service layer in which all the other activities on top of it is around the lab itself, like the lab learning and things like that, right? Yeah, exactly. So when you piece it all together, you'll have Terraform and it will say, AWS, I require this security group, which allows you know certain ports to come in. I need a subnet created and it's going to use these key pair for security to get in. 
And then as it does that, it'll finish and it'll say, hey, chef server, because you've got to put those details in. Here's those connection details. Here's the IP address, the username, the password. Bootstrap that. And then the chef server will connect to your AWS image and it will install its agent. Once the agent's installed, the chef server will say, okay, now you've, you know, Terraform has also told chef what profile or what role to put on that server. So Mm -hmm. after the client's installed, chef server will then say, now you have to look like this because that's what that cookbook has said, which is what the role says. Um, So the role says which cookbooks apply to it. It'll say, now you have to look like this because the agent's now connected and then it will run through that as as we've told it to make it look like what we want. Got it. I did notice that you were kind enough to share this all open source using public images, two thumbs up there. And in your docs, it's alpha. So I'm assuming that means you're wanting some help or some contribution from the community. Am I, am I wrong? Or, or what is it you want to do to further the progress of the, of the project? Okay, so the reason for putting alpha in there is partly because I'm actively working on it and you know it may have probably does have quite a few bugs in there. That was a big reason for <laughs> Alpha. It's just so like people don't go, oh, this looks great, and you know, expect that it to work perfectly when they start using it, especially at this point where it's so actively worked on. That was a big reason for saying, yes, it's very much an Alpha state. I'm still working out the kinks, and one of those was the domain join was more difficult than I expected it to be from an automation point of view in this style. For assistance with the community, I'm always happy to receive assistance with it. One of the items, when it stands up the instance, I'm trying to make it a minimum viable product. So it'll install the file server role, but I don't want it to do everything for the students or whoever's going to be using this, even if they're going to share it for general lab purposes. Um, I don't want it to do it for them because they, they have to do it to learn. However, what I'm starting to supply, and this is one of those things that contribution would definitely be useful for, is I'm starting to put in some some sample scripts. So great, it's done a file server. And they want to work on File Server Manager, but so they don't have to install every time. I'm looking to put scripts like that where they can run a PowerShell script within the instance and it will stand up that instance for them because they already know how to install it. I don't want to have that as a day one installation through Chef. Uh, I want that as they have an option to do it manually or they can run a script and I'll do it for them quicker so they can get on with their studying. Yeah, yeah, a bit like a choose-your-own-adventure. Do you want to start where, you know, this is your first foray or, hey, I'm advanced, let me take the learnings of others in the community and say, apply these profiles and cookbooks and whatnot to get you further along. That makes sense. Yeah, so like if you look at the file server resource manager, which is for controlling, you know, how people access file resources, funny enough, setting it up takes time. You've got to have directories where you want to apply policies to. So one of those scripts, I can't remember if I've put it up there or not, will be to just create a directory structure. So people don't have to do that to then use File Server Resource Manager and do that setup for it, it's already there. So they can do it manually to create a directory or if they can run that script in half a second, they've got you know 50 odd directories ready to go. I really liked about Brett's project is that he didn't have to do the whole thing from scratch. Even though he's building something new and making something useful, he was able to recycle other people's work to help him get it done. And to me, that's what it's all there for, the spirit of community and open source. You can get done what you really want to focus on and not the trappings. I mean, sometimes, yeah, you really want to know how the wheel works and so you make your own wheel, but other times there is just no point in reinventing the wheel. 
What about you, Chris? I like the idea of having a, I'm going to call it a stateless lab that can be built, run, you can tinker with it, and then, you know, destroy it. That's awesome. In fact, for some people, that is the project. But learning just that part is a huge plus for all the engineers listening. Uh, and I think once you master that, you can offer value above and beyond the lab and the learning environments that you're building. So, bravo. So, Brett, you described choosing which configuration manager you want to use and kind of gave us a sense that uh, Chef was the best fit. Okay. I'm guessing you weren't a Chef expert when you started this. You kind of were starting from ground zero with all of these, or did you kind of know Chef a little bit first? So with Chef, I knew it existed. I knew how to spell it. <laughs> um, okay. I knew there was a, a Swedish Muppet who was a chef. Uh-huh. And that was about it. So definitely not a chef expert at all. So this, so this, deep this knowledge, your, got it. <laughs> your first foray <laughs> into configuration managers. What preconceptions did you have about configuration managers that were proven right when you started the project? One of my preconceptions that I guess the main one was proven right is well, at a high level, you could say they do the, their own thing. Once you start to dig into the detail, then you can find that differentiation. And that was one of those things with with the configuration managers. Everyone's like, oh, yes, you can do this. And it's like, well, they can all do this. So one of the things I sort of learned that had proven right is, yes, they can all do it, but you do need to take a proper look at how they do it to work out which one's going to be the best fit. Interesting, because I remember I asked similar questions in the past, and it was like bake-offs and things like that, and it's it's kind of weighing your experience of go into the weeds a little bit, find out the the how versus the 12-month bake-off where it's this particular checkbox is slightly variated between different config managers. It sounds like it's somewhere in the middle. Like You, you can't take forever to pick one, but there are nuances within and, each, each tool. Yeah, when I picked Chef, I probably spent about an hour or so looking at Ansible about an hour or so looking at Puppet and about an hour looking at Chef. So I didn't invest huge amounts of time into making the determination. I had a look at just what I want to do, the way I wanted it to do it, and found the one that felt like it fitted best. I mean, if it didn't, well, bugger it, I'd go to another one (laughs) because it's not exactly an enterprise project where there's money relying on it. So that was sort of my approach was just have a look what felt like it uh, fitted well and just, just went with that. So as you did the research and you're like, okay, man, Chef is is the bomb.com. I got to use it. You know, what did you what did you think was going to happen that you got wrong? You know, what what misconceptions did you have after you started using? It? Like, oh darn, this doesn't work the way I thought it would. So it could potentially be nothing. Because, it could be like it worked exactly yeah. as advertised. You know? Well, it it kind of did in a way because I didn't know anything about it to start with. I knew what okay. I wanted it to do, and I got lucky in the fact that I picked the one just based on the bootstrap. I've picked the one that can do what I want. One of the things I found at the start was, I oh, great, there's all these community cookbooks to do what I, you know, to achieve, say, domain joining or installing these profiles. And one of the things I found with that is, well, the community cookbooks are great. They didn't quite seem to fit. So I took it, I went through a little bit of a learning phase in terms of, okay, the community cookbook can do it this way, but that doesn't fit with what I want to do. And the end result there was that actually a lot of my cookbooks using PowerShell commands or Windows desired state configuration, which is another configuration manager. So I have my configuration manager calling another configuration manager to get things done in a way that I think will achieve the most reliable and repeatable outcome. I think we understand the decision-making process. Now you've got, you pick Chef, you're like, okay, this is the one. 
what resources did you use to learn it? Because, you know, like you said, you were a, you were kind of new to this this whole world. What were the resources that are like, oh, this helped me really train or learn or read about? How do you chef? Chef has a site. I believe the URL is just learnchef.io off the top of my head. Uh, learn.chef.io. And it's actually one of the better training sites I've seen from a vendor on how to use a product. So you can pick certain tasks that they've given you. For example, installing a a lamp stack, so Apache and that sort of thing, and then or how to set up internet services on Windows. So you can pick between Linux and Windows, and it's all hands-on. It's lab-driven. So that was something that was really helpful to me. Outside of that, there's the documentation. I did find that at some point it skipped over a bit too much of the how. So then I went to the Chef Slack channel and I just asked my questions, simple as, you know, how do I search for an attribute? And then, you know, a few conversations later, okay, that's how I do it. And so between, if someone wanted to learn it, definitely start with the learn.chef.io. Then look at their documentation, but don't be afraid to ask questions on their Slack channel. I have had no, oh, what? You didn't read page 573 of the manual. It's clearly there in paragraph three. (laughs) Right. None of that. They would... People were very happy to answer. Hashtag and, RTFM. Is yeah, the best exactly. Answer ever. <laughs> and people were happy to answer the answer the question. Sometimes, yes, they did answer it in a way I didn't understand. So I'd come back and say, I still don't understand. And they'd dumb it down a little bit to the point where sometimes they might, you know, somehow manage to explain in crayon using Slack, which yep. doesn't use crayons. So, Brett, okay, you've made this thing now, and let's say I wanted to use your project. because I mean, it's been focused on MCSA lab as as a discussion we've had, but let's say I wanted to use it to stand up other kind of lab configs. Would that make sense, or is it really, you know, kind of locked down towards this Microsoft world? Uh, It's definitely not locked down to the Microsoft world. And the only reason there's a reference to the MCSA lab was my own purpose to say, well, what do I want a project to do? I use that blueprint. If you were to say yourself... Ethan, you're working on um, uh, AD authentication for a Cumulus device. You might spin up this lab in AWS and a Cumulus uh, router next to it using their, I think they might have an um, instance in AWS. You might spin that up and then get that Cumulus device to talk to AD for authentication. There's no reason why you can't do that. So you could use the domain configuration there would be one example I could give you. Hmm. All right, one last question for you, Brett. Now, you chose Chef for this, and it made sense. You explained all the reasons that Chef made sense for this project. But if you were looking at other projects in the future, do you think, based on your homework looking at Puppet and Ansible, that you might choose one of those for a different project instead of Chef? So I think a networking project, I'd probably lean a bit more towards Ansible. It seems to have very strong community support from the networking side. Um, and then you've got projects like uh, NetMeco from Kirk Byers, which I feel would probably be a really good starting spot there. So I think in terms of what a lot of people are doing and being able to get questions answered and assistance in one of those regards, I think that might be a better starting point. In terms of Puppet, outside of looking at it for an hour, I haven't really had a proper look at Puppet, so I can't really say what I would choose that for. I found you know, Chef has a good... It's been really good with me using it for a Windows operating system. So I'd, for those, I'd probably have a strong bias towards Chef, which is unfortunate to have a bias, but it's the simple reality here. All right, Brett. So how can people find out more about your project? Where do they go? 
Okay, so I've got it available on GitHub. So github.com slash sdbrett, so software-defined Brett. And it's under there, under a repository just called mcsa underscore lab. So if you want to download it, pull it apart and have a look at it and tell me, you know, all the mistakes I've made, I'm happy to hear them and get better at what I'm doing. It's only 6.3% um, PowerShell, though. I don't know if I can partake in your repo. <laughs> it's a lot of Ruby in there. <laughs> GitHub.com slash SDBrett and your software to find Brett. Does that mean you have like an API where I can make coffee calls or something like that? <laughs> Oh, I could go so many so many areas with that in, interface yeah, comment. So I'll <laughs> yes, yeah, we'll go with that one. That's cleaner than what went through my head. Okay. You also have a blog, sdbrett.com, and what is your Twitter handle? Uh, Brett Johnson zero zero eight. Thank you very much, Brett, for coming on the show today. We appreciate your contribution to the community with this and uh, for sharing this really cool project with the Data Knots podcast. And that is it for today's edition. You can reach Ethan. That would be me at ECBanks on Twitter. My blog is EthanCBanks.com and PacketPushers.net. You can find Chris at Chris Wall on Twitter, and his blog is WallNetwork.com. So for more of our data not shows about infrastructure engineering, nosedive down the rabbit hole that is PacketPushers.net. You will find the data knots talking about containers, conferences, certifications, PowerShell, full-stack engineering, storage architecture, moving to cloud, and so much more. Until then, may your server lights blink, your labs stand up drama-free, and your cables be cleanly managed. 